We have been doing Hebrews and we are on the final push to get there by the middle of the year. All right, And I am very confident we're going to get there. The only uh, problem is the next book that we're looking at doing is a book of 16 chapters instead of 13. So just hang on to your hats. Maybe we need to pick one that's got one chapter or something like Philemon or something like that. Um, But no, uh, hopefully there's been some stuff in it that's been useful to you. The really interesting thing about Hebrews is that the author gets to Hebrews 13 and he kind of goes, on the basis of all this truth, on the basis of all this theology, on the basis of everything, here's what you need to do. And he gets really practical. So over the next... Uh, five weeks or so, what you're actually going to hear is you're going to hear a bunch of topical sermons at the project that come out of Hebrews 13. Because he kind of goes from one thing in one verse, and then he talks about here's what you need to do here, and then you need to do this thing here. And it's all coming out of everything that's happened uh, in terms of his theological argument. There's a uh, particular side to theology called practical theology. I actually don't think there's any other kind of theology than practical theology. I think that's the only thing. Uh, I'm reading a book at the moment on... Uh, It it would put some of you to sleep, I think, but um, classical pastoral care theology in the church from like hundreds of years ago, all right? And it's really interesting that the guy actually says in it, in the introduction, the guy's writing and he says, there's actually a lot of the church fathers didn't see a distinction between theology and pastoral care. They all saw them as the same thing, all right? Which is pretty true. So theology is the study of God. So you study God, it has a practical kind of outworking. The truth is, in the Christian life, there's no theory, really, is there? There should only be practice, all right? Very, very important. The Scriptures talk about this all the time. So you've got in 2 Peter 1, verse 3 to 4, it talks about, uh, Peter says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. There's everything that you need for life and practice because of the knowledge that you have about God. Uh, Romans chapter 1 verse 5 talks about through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. You don't ever, Christianity in the Bible, a biblical view of faith never separates obedience and faith, they're always together, okay? So if you say you've got faith, if you say you've got theological belief, there ought to be um, actions that actually correlate to that belief. Uh, many of you have heard me say before, people always act on what they believe. You always do. So the issue is, if you actually believe something to be true about God, you should see some discernible difference from that. There's always a movement from knowledge to practice. And I actually think there's a biblical principle that there's a movement also from practice to knowledge as well. Obedience and knowledge are kind of interrelated and you can't separate them. You see, so the writer of Hebrews is saying, because Jesus is great, because God's deal with us is great, because of all these people that have gone before us, because of the blood of Jesus that cleanses you, here are some things that you need to do. This is really important because this is actually emphasised in other parts of the scriptures, like in James chapter 2, verse 14 to 18. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? And the answer is, it's no good, all right? It's useless, all right? It's like right here, the thought doesn't count, okay? The action's going to count. The thought's important, but the action's important too and they're connected. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say... Uh, 
good biblical authors, all right, and probably good preachers do this too. It's like someone's going to object to me and disagree with me. So here's his response to the uh, objection. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. So works are really, really important. They need to go together. Here's another scripture out of James chapter 1, which is a little bit of a scary one, to be honest. It says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Okay, bottom line, you come to church, you hear someone preach about God and teach you something and you go home and do nothing about it, you probably just laid another brick in the wall of self-deception. That's what James is saying. So the bottom line is, it's in a sense, in a spiritual sense, it's risky to come to church because you need to do something about what you hear. If you don't do something about what you hear, you increase in self-deception. James goes on, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Yeah, that, that would be crazy, right? You look in the mirror, some of you did that this morning, all right? Probably some of you decided I'm not going away from the mirror until I'm happy with what I see, all right? But somebody goes away and forgets what they look like, it's a bit crazy. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he'll be blessed in his doing. The project is interested in you being blessed. Does anyone else here want to be blessed? Well, according to James, you've got to do something. You want to be blessed? Do something. See, when there's no movement from knowledge to practice, self-deception is actually the result. So what we actually want you to do is today, your job is to find one specific thing to do out of what I'm going to preach on today. All right? One specific thing. Not a vague, aspirational thing. I want you to find something really specific that you can measure in seven days' time. You can come back to church next Sunday morning and go, I actually did what I committed to do. Now, am I going to tell you what that is? Well, I can if you want, but that's not my goal. My goal is that you'd find something that you could do in the next seven days because this is what the writer of Hebrews wants you to do. He wants you to do stuff because of what you know to be true about God. So what I've done, I've gone to great lengths for this. I have got some action cards for you and everyone's going to get one of these, all right? Because you need to walk out of here today with something that you're going to do. And there'll be lots of basic things that you can do. It's not like I want you to go and build a house in the next seven days, right? You just, just find something to do. It's going to make, hopefully it'll make a lot of sense. And it's okay. It's like you haven't sinned or done anything wrong if you write something down that wasn't on my list of stuff that I, I'm going to preach today. But you need to do something, all right? So I just need some volunteers hand these out. There you go. That's a victim, maybe. There's another victim, Okay, victim or volunteer. Okay, now, some of you are going, ah, oh, see, this is really convenient because I don't have a pen, so I can't do it. I have pens, so I just need someone else to come and hand pens out. Who's going to do that? Joey, thanks, mate. Put your hand up if you need a pen. Let's go. Everyone needs it. My goal today was not to preach and to build self-deception in people because they're not doers. Put your hand up, grab a pen. Now, some of you at this point might be going, do we have to hand this in? The answer's no. Maybe it should be yes. 
I mean, there's a sense, when you read the Bible, there's a sense about the fact that in community, in the community of faith, there's, there should be an appropriate level of accountability. So the really cool thing is if you're in a community group, it'd be good for you to take this on Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Sunday lunch, uh, whenever you have it, and just be open about it and ask other people to hold you to it. This is not a New Year's resolution. This is just one small thing this week. All right. It says on the top, can someone read out for me what it says on the top? Sorry, can you say that again, Cole? This week I'm going to... Excellent. This week I'm going to... And you can fill it in. Now, clearly, if you want to fill it in now, I mean, don't write something like, this week I'm going to have dinner on Wednesday night. (laughs) All right? It's, you know, or I'm going to go to work so I don't get the sack. No, we're not talking about that kind of stuff. So what we're talking about is talking about something that you're not currently doing at the moment. Okay? And it probably would be good if it came out of today's thing, but uh, if it doesn't, that's okay. Okay. So today, what I'm actually going to speak on is I'm going to speak on leadership. Because leadership comes up a couple of times in uh, Hebrews chapter 13. And if you've got your Bibles, you can turn there to Hebrews chapter 13. If you don't, it will be on the screen. You can follow it with me. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. And this has got to be one of my favourite leadership phrases in the Bible. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. I would assume that many of you have had leaders over you that have done it with groaning. And this next bit is, is no understatement at all. Well, there's no overstatement. Um, for that would be of no advantage to you. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. So I'm just going to work through some of these verses bit by bit. This is Hebrews 13, verse 7 to 8. Let's go through it again. Remember your leaders. Clearly what's actually happened there is the original leaders of the church have either passed on or they're not in the church anymore. And the writer's actually saying to people, have a look at them. Have a look at the way that they act. And we would appeal to you today, and actually, no, let me, let me just go back a step. I'm not preaching this. I'd like it if you didn't think that I was preaching this on my own behalf, okay? We've got leadership at the project, and it's not just me, all right? It's Diff, it's Nathan, it's Helen. There's people who have leadership over different areas in the church. We've got worship leaders. Um, some of you might think, well, Sonda Girl's going to preach on leadership, and he's got a, you know, a conflict of interest, all right? So if you could just think, I'm very happy for you and I'd actually feel much more comfortable if you actually applied all this stuff to every other leader that's in the church other than me, okay? Um, But I think this is really important stuff. So the sense here, if I just go back to Hebrews 13, verse 7 to 8 there, the sense here is that the leaders have passed on. And to be honest, we're a pretty young church. And if we'd actually nominate a leader that's not here anymore, that was really influential in the church, I'll tell you, I'd nominate Ted Hitsky. All right? Uh, he was, uh, he was an, 
an older man. We don't have too many uh, older people in the church. And uh, he was a real servant. He was, he was very much outward focused sort of fellow. He was looking to serve people wherever he could. Did we ever give him a formal leadership position? No, we didn't. Did he actually lead the leadership? Yeah, he did. Absolutely he did. I mean, the guy, you know, almost to his dying day, I remember him saying, I've got 12 tumours, cancer tumours in my body, and I'm just wanting to find some people who I can help. Who can I help? Who can I bless? Who can I be used by God to affect? And you get that kind of sense here in Hebrews 13 that there's some people, I mean, we've got a pretty quick amen for some people about Ted Hiskey there. You know why? Because you actually remember what the guy did. You probably don't remember that much about what he said. You remember what he actually did. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is actually saying. He's saying, look at your leaders of the past and see what they've done. And if what they did basically lines up with what they said, and this is the writer of Hebrews is not saying this, but if it lines up with what they said, you should imitate them. You should copy them. Now, if I got to my dying day the way that Ted Hitzke got to his dying day, I would be pretty satisfied. You could do far, 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 far worse than copying Ted Hitzke. Amen? And I would hope maybe one day there would at least be one person in the world that might say that about me. Is, to be honest, is that someone might actually say, Pete got there and he finished okay. And, and he obeyed God. And what he said, and this is a huge bind for someone who speaks, because... You know, the bottom line is that everything that I say doesn't always line up with things in my life. And that's the battle when you've got to stand up and talk about God and preach from the Bible, is that I have to say, say things sometimes when my life doesn't line up. And so there's this continual pressure, even this morning, where I'm just going, God, I just, there's areas, there's things I need to say today that I don't line up with. And so you're trying to pull all that stuff into line. And when you see someone where that's able to pull their actions and their behaviour and who they are into line with what they say. It's an amazing, amazing thing. It's one of the things that I talk to one of my sons about quite a bit at the moment is the issue of integrity. And there's sometimes uh, where one of my sons doesn't do, doesn't relate to his uh, mother and I the way that he ought to. But I see him go in other situations where he relates to other leaders better than he does to, to Ange and I. So I've started saying to him, I value integrity, so I'm not going to let you go into those other situations and be someone totally different because I don't want to raise hypocrites. All right? So you've got to be consistent across the board. And, and is that difficult? Yes, it is. And do parents often say, oh, they treat me like crap, and then they go out and they treat everyone else really well? Well, you need to train your kids. This is not about parenting, but you need to train your kids to be people of integrity and don't train them to be hypocrites. So don't let them treat you like crap and treat everyone else nicely. I think I said crap too many times there. Because <laughs> it's important. It may well be that these leaders here have actually given up their lives as martyrs. And you notice here in this verse here is uh, there's a sense here that it's not just remember once, but it's a continual remembering. Remember what they were like and keep copying them. Remember what Ted Hitzke was like and keep copying him, those who know him. And then he kind of breaks into this Really interesting uh, sentence at the end there, which doesn't really seem to fit all that much. He breaks into this one where he says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And commentators are pretty well split on what the author is actually trying to communicate. On one side, some of the commentators think what he's trying to communicate is that as good as your leaders were, Jesus is better, which would fit in pretty neatly with with Hebrews, because the whole way through he's just been going, check this out, 
Jesus is better. And now check this out. Jesus is better. And check this out. And Jesus is better. And he just keeps doing it the whole way. So that could well be it. But other commentators are actually saying this. They're saying what the author is trying to say is you could actually be like the leaders of the past because the same Jesus that they followed is still here. And he hasn't moved and he hasn't gone anywhere. This is a uh, quote I... uh, I heard Rick Warren say, listen to this, you've never really believed God until you've attempted something that cannot be done in the power of the flesh. It's pretty true, I think. You know, one thing that should be happening regularly in churches is maybe what we should start is an impossibility forum. It's like if Jesus is who he says he is, and everyone who's followed him in the past that have done amazing things is, is who they say he is, then who knows what you could do? It's one of the things that uh, I, I continually think about, um, and one of the things I'd love for people in the project to get a handle on, is I would love everyone in this room to always be attempting something that they think is impossible. Because that's where God operates. God doesn't operate within the, the boundaries of your skills and expertise and your experience. He may operate there a little bit, but you know where he operates big time is he operates when he calls you into something where you go, I couldn't do that. And I, love, I mean, you, you look in Exodus with Moses, and Moses is pretty gutsy, right? Because he's trying to talk God out of something that God thinks is a good idea, and he goes, I can't do that. And God's going, it doesn't matter whether you can't do it. He goes, I can't talk. Well, I made tongues. Get my point? You need to be attempting stuff that you think is impossible. And maybe what we should do in churches sometimes is we should just stop. And we should just have a testimonial time where we just open the mic up and people get to come up the front and talk about the things that they feel God's calling them into that they think they can't do. That would be good, wouldn't it? So I'd ask you today, as a bit of a challenge, because I'm sure some of you are doing this, I'd ask you today, what is it that you're attempting that you can't do? And I suggest to you that you need to find something to attempt that you can't do. Now, I'm not talking about, some of you with good theology are just kind of going, yeah, well, you can't do anything without God's help. Yeah, I know. That's not what I'm talking about, all right? What I'm talking about is what are you attempting and you just go, I don't even know how that's going to work. I don't know how that's going to happen, but I just think that that's something that God actually wants me to do. You'll see no better demonstration of God's reality and his power when you actually get outside your own abilities, you know, because one of the things that doubt does, all right, is if you're only attempting things that are within your set of skills or expertise and then you achieve it, Dad will kick in and will go, yeah, maybe it was just a coincidence. Maybe I was able to do it anyway. And you know what? That might be true. But if you get outside your comfort zone, if you get into the place where it's dangerous and you're just going, I don't, honestly, I, there's no, I think I'm supposed to be here, but I just, I've got no idea how I'm going to do it. All of a sudden, you're actually going to start to see God do stuff and you'll just go, Well, there's no doubt about that one because I wasn't going to be pulling that one off on my own. There's a guy called Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott uh, was born in 1927 and uh, he actually ended up being uh, an evangelical missionary martyr in 1956. Um, He and uh, and his wife, Elizabeth Elliott, she's quite well known now, were uh, missionaries. In 1953, Jim and Elizabeth married and continued. He continued his work in Ecuador In September 1955, a missionary friend from Missionary Aviation Fellowship spotted a tiny Ayuka 
Indian settlement in the jungle. And they were an unreached people group. You know what Jim Elliot decided to do? I'm going to go and tell them about Jesus. It's kind of, I mean, it's, it's kind of mini RI. I mean, the cool thing about what Helen just shared is she's just, that's not something I'm doing. Well, it is if God calls you into it. And I hope you get the drift here. The issue about leadership is actually not about let's all get in and work really hard. The issue about leadership is always about calling. It's always about where God wants you to be. And Jim Elliott knew that he had to go with some others and tell these, these Indians in South America about Jesus. And what happened was when he went there, it seemed to go okay for a little, a little while. And then uh, after a little while, what happened is the dudes came out and they basically speared them all to death. They killed them all. Listen to some of the things that Jim Elliott wrote in his journal. This is Jim Elliott here. Wherever you are, be all there. Live to the hilt every situation you believe to be the will of God. Amen? He did that, it appears. This is a good one. Forgive me for being so ordinary while claiming to know so extraordinary a God. And this, is, this last one it would be Jim Elliot's famous, most famous line. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which you cannot lose. That's a good spirit to have. That would be a good spirit to have in a church, would, would it not? You can't keep cars. You can't keep houses. You can't keep stuff. And Jim Elliott's going, invest in heaven. Put your investment there. Let go of the stuff that you can't keep and get the thing that you can keep. I mean, that's... If you went to an investment manager, a fund manager, and you said, I need some help with my investment, and they were a good fund manager, they'd go, okay, so maybe you need to give some more of your money away and you need to invest in God's kingdom because that is the best investment. So let me make a couple of comments about the nature of leadership. Leadership is a wise investment in eternal things. The project's going to, we're coming into a, a phase, a growth phase with leadership. Clearly we're going through a growth, growth phase numerically. But we're coming into a growth phase with leadership. We're in the process of working on a constitution. And honestly, the really cool thing about the project is that we're kind of scrambling just to keep up with what God's up to at the moment. And we need people to kind of step up in leadership in some different areas. We need people to fill gaps. This is not ultimately about the project needs people to fill gaps. This is ultimately about the fact that God's calling us as a church and I think he's calling you to invest in eternal things. So leadership is always an an investment in eternal things. The second thing is this. No one really ever told me this, I don't think. But leadership's actually pretty lonely, you know, because you're the first one. And if you're, the top, if you're the top leader of an organisation, you're kind of the first person out of the trenches. And by definition, no one else is with you. That's why you're the leader. Now that's... Somebody going, oh, he's not selling leadership to me too well. But here's the thing, you know, God's, God's with you. You know? And you're not... Those people who God calls to be a leader are not doing it because it's a really cool thing to do ultimately. They're generally doing it because God's calling them to do it. And he's going to equip them and he's going to give them the grace to do it and the help to do it. But you just need to know, this is like informed, fully informed consent for project people. It's lonely sometimes. And there's not other people with you. But you know, that's okay. 
because it's never ultimately lonely. Leadership is highly significant. The difficulty about leadership sometimes, and I'm speaking personally here, is that you don't always know what you've been able to help people with. So, I, I mean, I'm going to have 100 people coming up to me after church today, but and I'm not saying this for, the, for this reason, but when someone leads worship or someone preaches, you, you have the people who come up and just give you some feedback and say, look, it just it connected, it was helpful, are helpful encouragers, all right? Because that's what a leader's trying to do, okay? But I, I just, please don't come up and, you know, have a whole lineup of people wanting to say that about me preaching today, right? But you know what I would love? I'd love it if some of you went up to Wayne and just expressed appreciation for leading worship today, okay? That's a good thing to do. And the thing is, the reality about leadership is that you're probably going to do much more you're going to be much more helpful to people than what you're ever going to find out. And so leadership, in a sense, is a, is a step of faith because it says, I'm going to invest in people. And I, I don't know. I don't know whether it's always going to be helpful or effective, but that's certainly my intention. Number four, leadership is about calling. You see, the best leaders, as the writer of Hebrews has said, are the people that are able to connect their behaviour with their calling and the things that they say. They're the ones where they actually bodily kind of represent the calling that they're calling everyone else onto. Good leaders don't do it for the sake of people following them. All right? There's a classic old proverb that says, uh, he who thinks he is leading and has nobody following him is only taking a walk. Okay? Leaders need to have people behind them, but as soon as the leader is more concerned about having people behind them than leading... They're not actually leading very well anymore. It is about calling. Now, in the early days of the project, um, oh, be careful how you hear this because I don't want this to sound dodgy, right? But probably over the life of the project, I've probably, out of Diff and Nathan and I, I've probably put the most amount of time into the church, okay? And the most amount of volunteer time, Okay? I'm not saying that because I think it makes me better. I'm just saying that's probably... Is that, is that okay to say, Nathan and Diff? Is that all right? Now, I'll be honest with you, my attitude's been a problem sometimes, okay? Because I've been frustrated and upset sometimes because I've wanted other people to put in as much time as me, all right? But you know what? They don't have to because that's not God's call on them, all right? The issue for me is that that's God's call on me and I think I've actually said it at meetings before that God's call upon me is to be the leader in the project for as long as he wants to be the leader in the project and that's by necessity going to involve more time and more effort than other people who are not the senior leader, all right? And that's a calling. It's not like, like if you get into something and you just go, I want to serve... And that's a good thing to do, right? If you get into something and you say, I want to serve, and then you look around and other people aren't serving as much as you, you can get upset about it. But if you get into something and you go, this is where God wants me to be and this is what he wants me to be doing, it's okay if other people are not giving as much stuff as you because they don't have the same call as you. Does that make sense? And so it's okay for me to be putting in extra time over the last three years into the project. So don't, I don't want any pity or any of that kind of stuff. I just want you to realise there's specific callings and God's gracious... Help and ability goes with the calling, all right? If you, if you feel like God wants you to put chairs out on Sunday morning, he will 
buff you up and you'll have the energy to get that done. All right? There'll be some responsibility there as well, right? But do you get what I'm saying? It, it'll, his grace and his help will be there for that. If he wants you to be the senior leader of, of the church, his grace and his help will be there for that. So it's actually not about things being even. Um, and it's like, you do that little bit, I've got to do this. No, everyone's got to find out what does God want you to do and then he'll provide the ability and the help for you to actually get that done. It's always about God's calling for you. And I wonder how you're going with listening to him. God's a bit of a badger sometimes, doesn't he? He just badges, badges, badges. It just gets on your case until you give in sometimes, you know, because sometimes he calls you to do stuff. You just go, no, I'm not going to do it. Or I just want to ignore it. And if I ignore it long enough, it'll go away. All right. Not knowing that God's eternal and he's never going away. All right. We had a uh, pastor come out to the, uh, a missionary come out to the project in, I think, the first six months of uh, the project. And his name was Doug Boyle. And he uh, set up a Teen Challenge, I think, in Kazakhstan. And he's, he would be the most radical missionary I'd, I've ever seen. I mean, some of his, uh, you're sitting there listening to his stories and you're just going, are you talking like about an action movie that you, that you watched last Friday night? No. Like, this is just what it's like living in Kazakhstan and being a missionary and running a, a drug kind of centre. He made this really interesting statement, which I'd never really heard before. One thing that one, he basically said, this idea that everyone is a minister is a problem. Now, what he was talking about is he was talking about uh, how churches and people in churches say you don't have to be a paid pastor or minister to be in full-time ministry for God, right? Is that true? Yeah, it is true, right? Honestly, I'd never, ever heard anyone criticise the idea, and he was the first one I heard criticise the idea. And you know what he said? He said that is a big problem in the church, and the reason why it's a big problem in the church is because some people have got a specific call to go and do specific ministry, but people presenting and promoting that idea all over the place, he said a lot of them get actually seduced by riches and they work out if I'm in full-time ministry, I can still keep on my car and my house and all this sort of stuff and, uh, and still be fulfilling the call that God's got on my life. All right? Now, some of you might go, oh, that's a bit rough. But I, I, th- I think he's right. I think he's right. And I wonder whether there might be some of you that God's given a specific call to you and you've found a way to do it a different way and you're not quite doing it the way that God wanted you to do it. We've got to be really careful. And I, man, I am in the hood with all of you on this. We've got to be really careful with materialism, don't we? We've got to be really careful with whether what we own gets in the way of us following God. I mean, that's got to be one of the most insidious things that must happen in the West. And you know, chances are, I probably don't even see it. And you don't see it. One thing the project would love to do down the track is plant churches. Because we want more people to hear about Jesus. But you know what? We're going to need some people who are going to be church planters. When's that going to happen? Well, I'd like to think it might happen by the time we're five years old that we could plant another church somewhere. Because by far, just so that in case you don't know, um, statistically, there's absolutely no doubt at all that church planting is the most effective way to get people to Jesus bar none. 
you can go to every other church missional program and the thing that's the most effective by a long shot is church planning. You know what that means? It might mean that there's some people here today that God needs to call to be a church planner. And maybe you need to move town. Some of you go, well, I'll be the one that sends. Well, maybe you won't be. Maybe you'll be the one that needs to go. I've often said, you know, talked about the time that Gilly came up to me, he goes, you know, I was looking at some of the qualities of church planners and you'd be a really good one. I said, no, I'm not. I'm not a church planner. I don't do that stuff. And some of you, when you hear me talking about this, you probably start freaking out a little bit. You're just kind of going, oh, I'm thinking about my family now. This is a really interesting one. Because I'll be honest, one of the things that was really quite nerve-wracking is probably too strong, but one of the things I was quite concerned about in taking on paid work at the church this year was um, the effect that it would have on my family. Because it has a big effect on families to do the job that I'm doing. I come from a pastor's family. I lived in the family that where the church had quite a big effect and I think my parents did pretty well to minimise the effect that it actually had. And some of you may be nervous about doing leadership because of the effect that it might have on your family. Take this next bit home and meditate on it. This, is, this will be a bit controversial. There's been a suggestion from some uh, commentators that the final plague of Egypt, where the firstborn son was killed, was because the last idolatry that needed, or the last God that needed to be broken in Egypt was actually a family idolatry. I think families need to play an offensive and a defensive game. Is it important, is it important for me as a father to protect my family? Absolutely. Okay? Is it important for me to protect my family from the demands of things that would happen in my employment, whatever that is? Yes, it is. But I don't think that families can sustain being the only adventure that that family is on. If the, main, if, if the only thing that happens in a family is that a family plays a defensive game, I don't think the family can, can carry the weight of that adventure of the family being the only adventure that they're on. Does that make, do you understand what I'm saying? I don't think they can. See, I think you need to have an offensive approach also because the family needs something bigger to be connected to than themselves. If the family's only connected to itself, I think it'll just go, it'll just get messy. And so I think it's the job of the dad, firstly, and the mum, in partnership with the dad, to find an adventure that God would call the whole family to be on. Is it possible that God would call someone into an area where the family need to sacrifice as a whole? What do you think? Absolutely. In fact, I think it's probably important. I think it may even be necessary that the family have a sense of where God wants the whole family to plug into his kingdom and where the kingdom's going. The difference is that they all need to be in it together. This is not about dad running off and finding something cool that he thinks is really good and sacrificing all this time in the family. It's about the family as a whole buying into 
a particular adventure or direction that God's calling the whole family to. My working three days in the church was not an individual decision that I had to go off and sit on my own and make a decision on and just go back to my family and say, hey, you're just going to have to suck it up now because I'm doing three days for the project. All right? There's lots of talking. There's lots of communication that actually happened around that. We ought to be uncomfortable about what Jesus actually says about families in terms of following him. All right? Now, don't hear me. Some of you might be going, oh, he's anti-family. Yeah, maybe you're here for the first time today. He's, an- he's not anti-family, okay? I've got four sons. They're young. They've been very time-consuming. Children are very time-consuming. This is what Jesus said in Luke 14, 15 to 26. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. And you can listen, you can see in code there, it's like they found another adventure to be on instead of going to the banquet. The first said to him, I've bought a field, I bought a block of land and I must go and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I bought five yoke of oxen. I just bought a new car and I need to take it for a drive. And I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've just married a wife. This is, this is controversial, is it not? The wives here are going, hang on. <laughs> it's me, right? And another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. That's God's style big time. And the servant said, sir, what you've commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. You see, the people who were supposed to be there were on a different adventure and they just didn't want to do it. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. And this, like if you just read this next little section from Jesus in its unvarnished form, is pretty scary. Now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, Listen, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now... For those who are new, is Jesus saying we're going to go home and just start hating each other? No, he's not. What he's actually saying is in comparison to your love for me, this is the kind of priority I'm looking for in your life. It's almost like it's going to look like hatred toward other people. He's talking about priorities. He's talking about adventures. He's talking about being on God's agenda. I mean, Jesus is clear about the fact. The Bible's clear about the fact that love and honour your mother and father. He's not saying that. He's talking about priority. Some of you at this point in time might be thinking, yeah, well, I've been in church leadership and it ended up really badly. So I'm not going to do it again. I got burnt. I got overextended. I did too much stuff. 
or before you write off what God might actually be calling you to, you need to think about what was going on that ended so badly last time. Let me give you some possibilities. I would suspect that some of you have been caught doing things because you're mostly concerned about other people's opinion of you. Like there's been a fear of man thing going on and you just keep doing it and doing it and it's not actually about God's calling. It's just about I've got to keep doing this because I want other people to think well of me. And you just keep doing it and doing it and then all of a sudden maybe someone turns on you and you just think, ah, see, this sucks. I'm never doing this again. Which is why I keep saying to you today it needs to be about God's calling of you. Others of you have seen a need and you've wanted to fill it, all right? But you've been stuck there because you know what? There's never an end to needs. How many pastoral staff does the project need to meet everyone's needs in this church? More than we can afford, all right? Which is why we're about equipping in this church. We want to teach you how to care for each other. At the end of the day... Um, if you just become needs-oriented and you just keep giving yourself and giving yourself thinking that you can be the, the meter of everyone's needs, you've kind of taken over Jesus' job. Our job is not to take over his job. Our job is to get people to Jesus. True? Amen? He's the one that meets everyone's needs. We can't do it. And if you get in a cycle where you just keep trying to keep everyone happy and meeting people's needs, it's going to get really messy for you. Some of you have probably been stuck in leadership or church service roles because it's been really closely connected to your own sense of identity. And you can't let it go because it actually says something about you and it actually makes you something. And some people, and this is uh, one for which a fair bit of compassion, oh, I think most of these compassions are a good thing to have toward people who have struggled with these, there's, there's some people who've given very, very generously and it's ended badly. And do I think that there's a time where people need to sit on the sidelines and recoup and get pull things back together? Yes, I do. But I would ask you, does that mean that God would have you cease serving? Does that mean that God would have you cease leading? Where has God called you to be what has God called you to do do you pray and seek God out on where he wants you to be and what he wants you to be doing do you fast do you actually go without food sometimes so that you can dedicate some really specific time to praying to make sure you're in the right place see sometimes I think Australians we're probably a little too laid back sometimes and we need to be on the front foot a bit we get a little bit too phlegmatic and a bit faint-hearted in our desire to find out what God wants us to do and sometimes, and I speak honestly about this about myself, sometimes I think if I don't actually find out what it is, then I don't have to do anything. And it's because I don't really want to do anything. I want comfort. And the last thing I'll just add at this point, it might mean in the project, if God's calling you to do something, that you actually have to release something else. I remember a, uh, a number of years ago when I was in a, a different church uh, that my dad was leading. I remember I had this thought, Peter, you're a jack of all trades and master of none. And you know what? I got to that point and I just thought, I actually don't want to be a jack of all trades and a master of none. At that time, I was preaching a little bit. I was playing the drums. The opportunity had come up to, uh, to be an elder in the church there. And I just had to make a decision. I just thought, okay, well, I, I can't just keep doing everything 
because that's not what I want. What I actually want is I want to be really good at one thing and I really want to work and focus on one particular thing. Could I play the drums here at the project if I practiced? Yeah. Is that what God's calling me to do? I don't think so. God wants me to focus my energies in a particular area. And let me be clear about this. Uh, 1 Timothy 3 verse 1 says this. It says, If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. That kind of speaks to the Australian laid-back phlegmatic thing, right? God's kind of idea of leadership is that you'd actually put your hand up and just say, this is where I think God's calling me to be. And that's one of my particular joys in the church here is when people come up and they go, I really feel like God wants me to do this. Can you find a way to plug that together in the church so that it all goes really well? And I just go, yes, is a good answer to that question. Yes, we'll find a way to do it. I think that ought to be the headache of church leadership is not that they don't have enough volunteers, but they don't know how to fit their volunteers together so that the place grows together and goes really, really well. Man, I'm going to have to finish soon. Don't let someone else do it. One of the real concerns in education at the moment is uh, that school, well, not high school, but school principals in general are old, er, are older. And you know, a large part of the reason why they're older is because a lot of the younger generation coming through actually don't want to take on the responsibility and be owned by the school the way that principals. I've said that to my principal. I think, I think I've yeah, maybe even, even used those words. I've said it to lots of people. I'm just going, I don't want to be owned by the school like he is, or he appears to be. Apologies, Claire. But you know what? It's not about that. It's got to come back to what does God want you to do? Because the grace follows the calling, right? The help follows the calling. So Peter's operating on a completely incorrect level. Peter, Peter just needs to go, okay, well, maybe if that's where God wanted him to be, God would provide the help and the grace for him to be able to do that. True? So what things have you put off the agenda that God might be calling you into? Because you just need to know, you just, like when you look at stuff, you go, oh, man, I, I could never plant a church. It seems to be going okay at the moment. I mean, you can tell me otherwise at the end. It's, I'm telling you, it's... Is it because Peter's a really good church planner? Absolutely not. Is it because God called him to do something with a couple of other guys and we've just gone about and done it and then he's done something special with it? Absolutely. Because that's what he loves to do. I'm going to move on quickly. Here we go. We might go five over. Is it going to be okay? We started five minutes late, so it's kind of a bit of a trade. Here we go. 1724. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. This is an old place. So what I'm going to do is for a couple of minutes, I want you to talk to someone near you, and I want you to see if you can come up with three ways that people in the church, in this church, can help project leaders to lead with joy. So just give me really practical things. And then three ways of things that they could do that would actually bring about groaning for the leaders over them. Does everyone understand what I'm asking? Something really, really practical. Are you okay? Runs pretty, right, you got like two minutes. So quick, this would be a way you could submit to the leadership. Actually have a, have a chat about it.
Three seconds. Doesn't matter if you don't get three, just get some. Okay. He can give me, uh, let's just see if we can get three between all of us for how to help your leaders do it with joy. Who's got a practical thing you could do? Encouragement. Be speakers of truth, right? Leaders do need to hear the truth from someone who loves them, absolutely. Assist, yeah, help out. All right, tell me how you could do it. That would make the, your leaders groan. Criticism. Division and gossip. Good. Nail it. Now, just to have a look at this scripture again. You know, the, uh, the, the Greek, the original language in the Bible and the New Testament is Greek. The Greek word for the, uh, the word submit there actually has the, um, the sense of an athletic contest. All right? And you know what's interesting in churches is that leadership and the people who follow them becomes a bit of an athletic contest sometimes, doesn't it? Where people are trying to overpower each other. And the sense here is that the author's saying you need to submit as you would, I guess, in some kind of weird wrestling match. I was watching some Indians wrestle. That, that was weird the other day <laughs> on TV. It's like the wrestling at the... At, anyway, it's right off the topic, isn't it? And have a look at the next phrase there, for they are keeping watch over your souls. You know what the, uh, the Greek uh, words to describe this phrase, you know what they've got the sense of? They've got the sense of chasing away sleep, that someone's actually lost sleep over their people to go sleepless. Now, I'll just let you know, just so that you know, and I think this would be the case for every leader, although I haven't spoken to them in the project, is people don't just think about those that they're leading when they're on the clock. True? I think about them lots. So what I want to move into now, and we'll go through this really quickly, is 10 ways your leaders cannot sleep with joy. True? Here we go. Number one, volunteering and offering to help. We love it. That's a joy. When people come up and go, can I help out? We just go, can you help out? That'd be great. We'd love it. We'd love lots of volunteers. In fact, The scriptures are quite clear about the fact that God's given you specific gifts so that you can volunteer. So we love it when you do. And uh, people are doing that all the time and we love it. If you haven't yet, start doing it. It's great. Let's all just get in together and be on mission together. (sighs) Yeah, I'm going to skip that one. Forces loyal to Libyan leader Muammar Gaddafi have launched... Forces loyal to Libyan leader Muammar Gaddafi have launched a renewed offensive on the rebels' western stronghold of Misrata. Rebels have retreated under heavy fire. Doctors reported 31 people were killed and more than 100 injured. Witnesses said there was no sign of NATO aircraft. The outgoing US Defence Secretary Robert Gates admitted NATO was struggling to provide critical support in Libya. And he launched a blistering attack on member countries who failed to contribute to the mission. Those who enjoy the benefits of NATO membership but don't want to share the risks and the costs. This is no longer a hypothetical worry. We are there today, and it is unacceptable. He said all member nations voted in favour of action on Libya, but only a third of those had taken part in airstrikes. And he added there was little future for NATO under the current arrangement, with the US footing 75% of the bill. Uh, am I saying that the project needs an air force and to launch airstrikes? No, we don't. Okay. 
But here's, here's what I am saying. You notice there they said everyone voted for it in NATO, but only a third of the people actually contributed. That's really what he's saying. He's going, it's not good enough. Okay? And it's a bit like that um, in churches sometimes, isn't it? I mean, if you asked everyone on Sunday morning, do you think this is a good idea? Do you think we should go and do that? And most people go, yeah, that's a great idea. And when it comes to actually people volunteering and actually contributing, um, the numbers kind of dwindle away a fair bit. So the first one is by volunteering and offering to help, by submitting to your leadership. Look, it's going to be a really rare thing that the project ever says, you need to submit to, what, to the direction we need to go, right? Um, I think probably once in my married life for the last 13 years have I asked my wife to submit to me on something, okay? And it was something that was really dangerous and I was doing it for her good because I didn't want her to read a letter, a rude letter that someone had written to us when I was in a leadership role in another church, all right? It was a particularly caustic letter and I just thought, this is not going to be helpful for us. So I said, well, when this letter comes, here's what it looks like. I don't want you to read it. And I said, I'm just asking that you submit to me, all right? See, submission is not about someone having control and power. Submission is about the, the greater good, okay? It always needs to be about the greater good. And I hope that you've seen at the project that we've got a very consultative kind of uh, leadership style and we, listen, we like to listen to a multitude of counsellors. Uh, we don't just run off in a control freak kind of way. Number three, um, another way you can uh, help our leaders to not sleep with joy is by doing it for the benefit of everyone, all right? It doesn't really help leaders when someone comes in and they go, I'm just doing this for you. We're not asking you to serve for us. We're asking you to serve for all of us. We're asking you to serve for God and with God's strength. Number four, commit to encourage them. This is something you could put down on your sheet today. Just commit to encourage them. Just say, this week, I'm just going to write an email. I'm going to send a text message. I'm going to make a phone call to someone who led. Maybe I'm going to do it to Helen. I'm going to do it to maybe a kids church teacher that leads my kids. I don't know. Someone. Just encourage them. Um, by honouring your leaders publicly and privately. That doesn't say agreeing with them. Okay? Honouring an agreement uh, tend to be two different things, but you can honour someone that you disagree with, right? In fact, most parents are imperfect, and the Bible says honour your parents. So have a heart of honouring your leaders publicly and privately. Number six is uh, by realising that it is everyone's responsibility, not the leaders solely. What happens in a church as it gets older is people, there's more passengers and people start going, oh, it's Sondergeld's job because we pay him, so he's got to do everything. All right? Our commitment to you as the leadership of this church is we're going to keep the paid staff as skinny as possible because we think it's in your best interest to serve each other. Because the Bible says there's a blessing when you serve each other. Amen? So we're not going to waste money putting lots and lots of pastoral staff on because it appears to us that the more pastoral staff you have on, the more passengers you've got in the church and the less blessing is flying because people are loving each other less, probably. Does that make sense? So that's our commitment to you. It means sometimes we're going to be scrambling to just go, oh, how do we keep up with the growth that's happening because we're not really... And that's where we're at at the moment. We're just going, well, okay, so maybe three days pastoral work by one person is not really going to do it, all right? So we've just got to work out how else... Are we actually going to do that? Seven, by being yourself. We're not really interested in people being yes people or no people, like being contrary and just wanting to stir up trouble. Be yourself. 
All right, be who God's called you to be. If you disagree with this, come and talk to us about it. If you agree with this, you can come and tell us too. That would be really nice because most of the time you hear from people who don't agree with you and that's okay. But come and tell us and just be yourself. You don't have to be what we think you need to be. 1 Peter 4 verse 11, I think it is, talks about he who serves needs to serve in the strength that God supplies. If you were to rock up to church on a Sunday morning or you were doing something during the week, you were being a community group leader and you came up to me and you said, Peter, I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I didn't call you and I didn't call Diff and I didn't call Nathan. I just realised, man, I've just got to spend 20 minutes seeking God to get the help that I need to run community group. That would bring, man, I could not sleep with joy on that one. You with me? That's great. If everyone in here was just going, I'm going to the source to get my strength and my help, that would be great. But doing all things is unto the Lord. Oh, I'm trying to finish quick. Colossians 3, 23 to 24 says this, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Now, this might be a bit rude, but I'll just put it out there. It's amazing the number of times that I hear people say about churches and leaders in churches say, well, you're working with a volunteer organisation, so you just got to expect that. All right, and we're talking about things like punctuality. And I'm not talking about punctuality to church, just punctuality to things that you say that you do, um, being true to your word, um, just helping out in ways that leaders would ask you to help out. Um, if you're new today, I'm not always like this, right? But you know what? This ought not be, right? I mean, it's a weird thing. It's like, We'll, be, we'll do the things that we need to do when we're at work because I'm getting paid for it. If I don't get paid, I'm not going to eat. You know? But when it comes to the church and people come in and they're actually doing something for God, it's like, oh, that'll do. doesn't matter if I don't show up. doesn't matter if I don't tell people I'm not coming. It would be a real joy to us if you did everything as unto the Lord and you offered it to Him. All right? Don't, some of you might be going, oh, Pete's going to get cranky if I, no, Pete's not going to get cranky, all right? You don't have to give an account to me. The scriptures are clear, you give an account to God, all right? And just don't, I'm just saying, don't give him your crap. Is anyone else with me on that? Like, you give him your best. Like, if he was here today and you made something, I always thought, there was a, there's a mob called the Shakers that used to make furniture, all right? And their theme was, you've got to make furniture good enough that an angel could sit on it. And so it was perfect everywhere. It's perfect underneath. You know, you buy something from Amart and they lack at the top where you can see it and underneath it looks like crap, right? Because they just go, oh, no one's going to look at it. Shakers didn't do it like that. They actually said, you make it so that an angel could sit on it and it's good everywhere. Why can't we be like that in the church? Why does the church have to look like a volunteer organisation where people aren't getting paid? And I've heard people say things like this. They say, well, you can't rely on your volunteers in a church, which is why you have to pay people to do jobs. We don't have to be like that, do we? It tends to be what happens when the volunteers in churches are not doing things as unto the Lord. What actually happens is churches end up employing more people and it costs the church more money. It would be a joy to us if you did all things as unto the Lord. And the last one, be praying for your leaders and the ministry you're involved in. I'm going to close by showing you a clip out of the movie Invictus. 
Invictus is a story about Nelson Mandela and how he worked with the South African rugby team to bring about some, to add to the uh, unity that was actually happening or he was wanting to happen in the, in the uh, country after apartheid. And this is a clip where the uh, captain of the South African rugby team and Nelson Mandela meet up. Francois, what an honour. <laughs> I am so excited. Thank you for coming all this way to see me. Yes, sir. Thank you for inviting me, Mr President. So, uh, tell me, Francois, how was your ankle? My ankle? I was told it was hurt. Has it healed? The truth is, sir, you never really play it 100%, no matter what. Ah, yes. In sports as in life, eh? Yes, sir. Now, please, sit. Uh, take this one. Looking into the light hurts my eyes. Mrs. Bliss, you are a shining light in my day. Yes, sir. <laughs> uh, Mrs. Bliss, this is Francois Pinard, captain of the Springboks. Oh, no, my goodness, my goodness. Oh, no, my goodness. Shall I pour, sir? Uh, no, no, I, I would prefer to do it myself. Thank you very much, Mrs. Bliss. How do you like your tea, Francois? Just milk, please. The English have given us many things, including rugby. But uh, afternoon tea, that is the greatest. How we are. Thank you, sir. You have a very difficult job. I do. I have a trading business. Captain of the Springboks. A very difficult job. Well, not compared to yours, Mr. President. <laughs> well, uh, no one is trying to tear my head off while I'm doing mine. <laughs> yes, sir. Tell me, Francois, what is your philosophy on leadership? How do you inspire your team to do their best? By example. I've always thought to lead by example, sir. But that is right. That is exactly right. But how to get them to be better than they think they can be? That is very difficult, I find. Inspiration, perhaps. How do we inspire ourselves to greatness when nothing less will do? How do we inspire everyone around us? I sometimes think it is by using the work of others. On Robin Island, when things got very bad, I found inspiration in a poem. A poem? A Victorian poem. Just words, but they helped me to stand when all I wanted to do was to lie down. But you didn't come all this way to hear an old man talk about things that make no sense. No, no, please, Mr. President. It makes complete sense to me. On the day of a big match, say, a test, in the bus on the way to the stadium, nobody talks. Ah, yes. They're all preparing. Right. But when I think we're ready, I have the bus driver put on a song, something I've chosen, one we all know. And we listen to the words together. And it helps. 
I remember when I was invited to the 1992 Olympics in Barcelona. Everybody in the stadium greeted me with a song. At the time, the future, our future, seemed very bleak. But to hear that song in the voices of people from all over our planet made me proud to be South African. It inspired me to come home and do better. It allowed me to expect more of myself. May I ask, what was the song, sir? Well, it was in Fosisikilele, Africa. A very inspiring song. We need inspiration, Francois. Because in order to build our nation, we must all exceed our own expectations. This is where I want to finish, all right? I, I believe God wants the project to be great. The, uh, the disciples were fighting about who was the greatest. And Je you know, Jesus never ever said to them, you're wrong for wanting to be great. He just told them how to be great the right way. He said, you serve one another. And I, I really believe that for all of us here today. And this is where I'm going to finish. And my apologies for going a bit over. But this is where God's got us at the moment, is that you need to be... How do, how do I persuade you to be something better than you think you can be? You see, that, that's the land of faith. The land of faith is that God wants every single one of you to be in a place that you don't think you can be. And that's our job as leadership. And this is where I want to finish today, is I want you to know that we're thinking about and we want to see this church not get somewhere because I have a bit of a crack at you about a few things in a message, but because this is God's plan for you. It's such a great question. How to get them to be better than they think they can be? And he says, this is very difficult, I find. How do we inspire ourselves to greatness when nothing else will do? And the one thing that came out early on in that clip there was uh, the captain of the South African rugby team said, the best way he's got is to, do your best, is to lead by example. And we'll try to do that. Can pride get involved in being great? Absolutely. Do we need to be careful? Yes, we do. But I think greatness is what God calls us to. Not for our own sake, but for his sake and for his glory. Is it true that we all need to exceed our own expectations? Is it? Yeah. Yeah. Is it true that we need to exceed our own expectations? <laughs> Is it true we need to exceed our own expectations? Oh, come on. That's what faith is. Why don't you stand with me and I'll pray and we're done. God, thank you for uh, being a God that continually leads people into being something better than they could be and to changing people. The theological word is sanctification. You're continually leading us into that and you lead us out of the expectations that we have and into your expectations. And God, I pray for everyone in the project. I pray for myself, for the leadership, for everyone who's been listening today. And God, I pray that you'd lead us all to something greater than what we expect. And God, that we'd be uh, passionate, passionate followers of you, that when you come along with a call that's outside of our categories, we'll pursue it.
and we'll have a crack at it and we'll think maybe God might do something and we'll take the risk. God, help us to be that. And God, for anyone here today who's been the recipient of difficult, caustic, unhelpful leadership, God, I pray that you bring about healing to them so that you get them back on the track, back on the adventure and back on the journey of following you. God, I pray that you would just preserve them and you'd help them not to be offline for too long, but they'd be right back in the slot where you want them to be. Thank you, God, that you're about healing, you're about fixing people, you're about bringing restoration, but you're also a God of action. And you lead us on the adventure that you've been on for centuries, thousands of years, and we love that. So God, help us to... Man, I'm just excited about the project, God, and what you might do through us all. So help us, God, just to lift to be inspired, to be excited about what you might actually do through us and just really engage with what you're up to. Amen.